Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In this episode, we discuss how families are approaching intergenerational wealth transfers in an election year. I sit down with a number of professional and financial advisors to discuss how families are managing personalities, what conversations you need to be having with your shareholders, strategic planning and client education, the importance of personal financial reflection, and what some of the options are if one family wants to pursue charitable donations. Okay. Thank you all for joining us. We are just getting started here and we're going to let the participants file in here for a minute and then we'll go ahead and get started. Thank you all for joining us on at least what is in Nashville a beautiful Thursday morning. The format will be, we'll we'll go around the room, we'll do introductions. We've got some topics and questions that we fielded from folks early on and then we'll open it up to Q&A at the end or if there's Specific subjects that you want one of the panelists to get into, happy to do so. There is a Q&A button at the bottom. So if you have something midstream or something that you want the panelists to unpack a little bit further, go ahead and use that Q&A button or the chat function, and I'll try to make sure to direct them there. So I'll go ahead and start it off. I'm Brian Adams. I'm the founder and principal of Excelsior Capital based here in Nashville, Tennessee. We are a commercial real estate investment platform. And we offer direct co-investment opportunities to individuals and family offices and independent RIAs and really focus on capital preservation as well as generating a passive income stream, along with a lot of tax benefits that Josh knows a lot more about than I do. But let's go ahead and, and go around the room and do introductions. William, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'll take it all. Thank you, Brian and Excelsior Capital and Aaron and Chris and Josh. Look forward to this conversation. Second gen is a boutique investment banking shop, which was set up in 1994. Our thesis is that you know every private business will have a liquidity event at some point in their, in their life cycle. So we help coach, assist, and quarterback what happens next. So our key value add is you know, enabling control over when and how the business is transitioned. So 
that's kind of what drives every engagement with our clients. And as everybody else in this panel will preach, you know, if you perfect the plan, then execution is easy. So that's, that's kind of our mantra. The firm and the members have, you know, executed and advised on over a billion in transactions since 94, you know, ranging from M&A to, to equity and debt placements. We've worked with clients in over 34 states, about 34 states last time we tallied, but we have a slight concentration here in the SEC country. We focus in the lower end of the middle market, work in healthcare to e-commerce to blue collar services, construction related, trucking logistics, ag related businesses. So we have a broad knowledge across you know, many industries. And you know, our, our value proposition, another one of our value propositions to our clients is the strong networks that we have with banks and high net wealth, private equity groups, VCs, family offices. You know, we talk often. You know, frankly, they're reaching out to us a lot. So we understand their mandate, what they're looking for, how they execute the process. And so we can help scope and prep our clients. It's myself, Dana Holmes, Rusty Krushak, and we have a value-added affiliation with Kraft CPAs. Happy to be here. Great. Thanks. Josh, why don't you go next? Give us a little bit of background on yourself and the firm. Yep. Uh, Josh Pfeiffer. I'm a senior manager with Ernst & Young. I am based out of our St. Louis office. Before the pandemic, I've been getting down in Nashville quite a bit. That's uh, That's gotten held off a bit here. Look forward to being back. But I work within our UI private tax practice, supporting wealthy families, their family offices, and their family businesses with respect to income tax planning, estate tax planning, wealth transfer planning. Really trying to serve holistically from the family and through the family office and the business as well. And something we have done um, that we think is a, a value add over the past about five or so years is we, we acquired two practices, which really look at a family office and a family business more from the specific consulting side. So from a family office, looking at the people process and technology of a family office, and then also from a family business side, um, looking at governance, liquidity, capital management, those things and the like. So really trying to, to marry up the tax aspects um, with the different business sides of family office and businesses. Happy to be here with everyone today. Yeah, thank you. And I think your insight will be invaluable considering what's coming around the bend here. I'm sure you're putting in a lot of hours. So I appreciate you carving out some time for us. Chris, why don't you go next and give a little bit of background on yourself? You got it. Yeah. Chris White, now I serve as CEO of a company called Chronicle Partners. We are an independent investment advisory group here in Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. And uh, so, so Chronicle tells a little bit about what we do. We believe that everybody's writing a story. And a Chronicle is an account of historical events. You see that in the Chronicles of Narnia, Chronicles in the Bible. And so we get to help people tell their story. And the story that we're helping people tell is, is their legacy. We're helping them develop the legacy, which includes wealth. And so we help folks create a legacy and pass down a legacy that they're really really proud of uh, that they want to pass down to generation after generation. And so what we specialize in is, is business strategy, financial planning, and asset management. And when it comes to the business strategy side of, uh, of things, we, we believe that a big issue in our world today is that professional providers are siloed out and they're spread out all over. And the CPA is not talking to the estate planning attorney, who's not talking to the business advisor, who's not talking to the financial planning team. And, and so everybody's siloed out, which is highly, highly inefficient. 
And so, so what we want to do is, is, is we knock those silos down. We bring the teams around the client. And so we work with a lot of families that own businesses uh, and we help them really take a look at, at where they're at, where they want to be, identify and mitigate risk and develop a roadmap to help them get to where they want to be. Um, on the financial planning side of, of things, most people focus just on investments, which is really, really detrimental to, to families and to business owners. So we look at the entire financial plan. And so most of our conversations any given day are based around tax planning and estate planning and uh, bringing in the other pieces of insurance planning, charitable planning, along with the investments in retirement. And so um, we specialize in that. And, and, uh, and again, love to bring the professionals around the table to really help out in those areas. And then of course, asset management. So we do uh, add some significant value in that space as well. One thing that's a, a, a little bit different from a value add standpoint too, is we don't, we've realized over the years that some folks don't have assets per se to help out with, because you might have somebody that's got large positions in real estate or a business and most of their net worth is tied up uh, into that. And so we've developed a, a structure where we don't have to manage the assets. And so we do engagement fees and planning fees. Of course, we can ask, uh, manage those assets as well, but we get to focus on that planning piece of it uh, and bring that value to the table. Because if you've got somebody you've worked with with Merrill Lynch, for instance, for 30 years, and it's a great relationship, keep it going. But we want to help out in that planning side of things as well. So grateful to be here. Thank you for, uh, for having me. I've known Chris for a long time, so I'm excited to, to do something like this with him. And I would echo his point kind of on best practices, and we'll get into this, but I think just having all the stakeholders at the table and make sure they're communicating with one another and not siloed out is probably going to save a lot of people pain and money down the road. So Aaron, you're rounding us out here. Could you provide a little bit of background on yourself and your practice focus? Sure. My name's Aaron Flynn. I'm an attorney with Waller Lansden here in Nashville. Practice purely in the uh, personal estate tax planning. So I work with I just enjoy working with people. Obviously, I think our value adds at more of the high net worth. Happy to do wills and trusts and, and, and planning for grandchildren for everyone. But where we specialize is really in that high net worth space. Um, our experience, the, the, the robust services that we have of a firm our size allows us to, to be able to kind of leverage, you know, real estate or, or employment issues. But work primarily with business owners and families with inherited wealth. Uh, help protect it, grow it, and, gen- and get it on to the next generation. Also do a lot of work in the private trust company space here in Tennessee. We are a, a quickly rising up the ranks of, in our PTC, which is basically a, a captive bank, if you will, that allows a lot of, of control indirectly for the family. Uh, and then also work a lot uh, with family offices, both just on the structuring and the management side, in light of the recent lender case, I've been doing a lot of restructuring to kind of come under that to, to get the deductibility or investment fees back. But really, I just I enjoy working with people. And, and, and as has been said, you know, I think a team approach is, is one that we enjoy. I, I think I'm pretty good at what I do, but I also know that I'm not at other things. And, and being able to have everyone sit around and work collectively for our clients is really what we're all here for at the end of the day. Yeah, terrific. And part of the the reason we want to have everyone from these industries around the room is I think these are exactly the folks that, you know, should be at the kitchen table conversations for families and, and business owners and individuals right now, considering there's a lot happening. So 
That being said, we're three weeks out roughly from the election. There's a lot of activity going on. I bet Josh and his guys are burning the midnight oil. Um, so to that end, let's start with Josh. How do you, I mean, you're a big organization. You've been through multiple election cycles and you've been through some some large, you know, potential and past tax legislation changes. How do you manage this just infrastructure wise? I'm sure you're just getting inbounded constantly. And it seems like, you know, there's a tight timeline there. How does the mothership handle all this? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's easier when you've you've been there before and we have a, a support system around it. And the way we're structured is we have like practice areas, like I'm out in the out in the practice, out out in the market with clients. We also have a large national tax department behind us. So people who are in the on the ground in Washington hearing things first, relaying that to them, and they sit in what I would just call our, our ivory tower of of tax thoughts, giving us um, perspectives, opinions on on different different things coming down the pipe, timing on those things, and potential potential opportunities around it. But yeah, to that to your point, I think a lot of uh, tax professionals have been focused the last couple of months on just like trying to get to the tax deadlines because that obviously is today. I'm happy to be through that, but I think there's going to be a flurry of activity the last the last couple of months of the year, which we're all going to be dealing with dealing with here. And I think something we've been doing is, you know, different families are taking different approaches. Some families are, let's wait and see what happens. Others are saying, I want to know what's happening the second something changes. I want to be ready. I want to have a plan that if capital gains rates are going up, if the estate tax exemption is, is, is going down, whatever it is, what is our plan and what we're executing between now and now and your end? So seeing, seeing different approaches, I'm happy to get involved in whatever pro- approach a family wants to take. Yeah, and I, I want to follow up there, you know, before we go to the next panelist. But, you know, obviously the pundits are saying there's a blue wave coming. It seems like the market has priced that in, although, you know, these things go other ways sometimes. How do you manage the cost and the effort and the energy and the decision making process for families? Because you can't you can't say, well, we truly believe this will happen and, and that there'll be these knock on effects for tax legislation. How do you just manage that personality of the family who's trying to, you know, go through these these big decision making processes? Yeah, I think that's where it's it's interesting, and that's like I look at tax in a way of it's probably for a lot of families one of their single biggest outflows, right? If our top tax rate is forty percent, not including state taxes, and I have a hundred dollars of income, I automatically have sixty dollars of income after that. If we don't do like estate planning, get Aaron involved in all these different things, that that sixty can quickly go down to twenty or twenty or less for things like estate taxes. So I think it really depends on the approach a family takes. Some families don't want to do too much until there's certainty. Some want to have all the options out on the table, ready to move as as soon as it's there. But I think the one of the benefits we have is working across so many different clients, seeing so many different situations. We can leverage those different situations. So we're not starting from scratch every single time you're trying to do this analysis for somebody. Um, so something very simple is we have developed a Biden like tax model. So if anyone on this call came and said, here, here's my 2019 tax return, drop it in, tell me what my liability would be like under Biden, assuming everything changes right and things go through that way. We could say, okay, it was two and a half million. It's going to be three and a half million. Here's why. Here's some things to think. So really trying to develop tools that can be leveraged across clients, not recreate the wheel every time. 
Uh, Aaron, same question for you. Have you seen an uptick in activity from your client base? Is there a, a flurry of requests and, and how are you managing all that? We have. We actually started probably towards the end of last year kind of focusing on this and saying, hey, look, we got the election, then you got the sunset and the exemption amounts in a couple of years. So the idea was we had started. We've been fairly aggressive with uh, with our clients on on maximizing the exemptions if that's what they want to do. But yeah, definitely seen an uptick. We'll probably see a lot more calls in a couple of weeks of people coming in once the 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 you know it, it's kind of set in stone who wins. But just dealing with clients, you know, obviously when you're talking about the unknowns, I mean, if everybody remembers back to 2010, 2012, the exemptions were going away and everyone said, hey, they're never coming back and people were making large gifts. And then in 12, they actually came back and went up. So we all were kind of looking there. But, but yeah, a lot of clients are looking to take advantage of the exemptions right now, where they might be going. And then, you know, the income taxes are really going to start becoming a play. So you know, as Josh mentioned, you know, Tennessee is a non-income state, so income tax state. So a lot of people setting up non-grantor trusts here to kind of avoid if there is an exit, do we get a trust here to, to you know, the incomplete non-grantor trust structure where you can avoid home state tax. So I think a lot of it's the estate planning, but we're starting to do a lot of income tax planning. You know, Tennessee community property trusts are great, but just a lot more focused on state level uh, income taxes and how do we avoid those to the extent we can. But yeah, a lot of, lot of business is picking up and, and I imagine it's going to continue. And Chris, I saw you nodding your head. It seems like you've been having these type of conversations. This obviously is a good opportunity to, I know our family suffers from this. My father-in-law, who's the patriarch of our family office, he's going to be the first person ever to not die. And so it's a pretty interesting case study, but I'm sure this is a good opportunity to, to have that difficult conversation. I talk about planning multi-generational wealth transfers, et cetera. What are you hearing from your clients and, and, and what are you telling them? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things that I've reflected on here as of late is the fact that 2020 has been a year where I think so many people have, have paused to really think about what they're doing and just kind of reassessing their life, where they're at, where they want to be. And so it is a wonderful time to to evaluate all of all of the pieces. I, I, I don't want to sound, I don't want it to be too intense, but to to kind of reevaluate life and reevaluate your plans and where you're headed and, and and what's going to get you there. And so, the conversations are happening all over the place right now. And so, I think something that's really important again, going back to something that we've said before, is having that team around you, evaluating your team, making sure you got the right people, that your trusted advisors that are going to guide and lead you in the right direction and help you accomplish what you're looking to accomplish. So that, again, your legacy is developed appropriately and it's a legacy you're really proud of that you can pass down to generation after generation. And so um, we, we have seen certainly an uptick in conversations and I think part of that is because of uh, obviously coronavirus and, and, and the election. And there has been this, this convergence of all of these different pieces that have led to these conversations. And I believe they continue for quite some time. And so it is, it's a great time to reevaluate and get, get the pieces in order. William, you and I are both deal guys. So let's talk about deals. But before I get into it, I had a call yesterday with, with somebody and I think this is an interesting opportunity to talk through 
how you make hard decisions because somebody said, well, what is your family doing, et cetera. And my father-in-law is 73. We've been through multiple elections, obviously, multiple huge tax regime changes. And so I, I think food for thought for everybody on the panel and also listening, this is a really good chance to maybe systematize and institutionalize how you make hard decisions because this type, you know, once in a generation election, a once in a generation election seems to happen every four years now. Yeah. And so I, I think it's good just practice and opportunity to to put down, you know, how you navigate these type of things and how you make hard choices because they're going to keep coming. But w- William, what are you seeing? Are you seeing private business owners wanting to take chips off the table because of potential tax changes? Do you think that's going to lead to more deal flow? Has it interact with all this dry powder and private equity on the sidelines? What are you hearing from your actual clients and people on the street? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's there's still a lot of activity, less so from a tax impact you know, driven stance, but it's more strategic or life stage, kind of what Chris talked about. People are trying to figure out, okay, I went through 08, 09 and, and it bottomed out and I built it back up. And now am I be- are we about to bottom out again? I don't want to go through that again. So I'm, I'm, they're, they're putting, like you said, practices and planning in place. But from, you know, from the market standpoint, corporate consolidation M&A work is, is still there. The add-on, tuck-ins, those are easy implemented acquisitions for the private equity groups and, and the corporations. You know, we're working on a, we got a call on a public company we helped sell a business into. You know, one of his uh, colleagues in the same space called and, and, and we got referred there. So that, that tells me that that company is, is heavily investing in M&A. Equally, as you alluded to, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of dry powder out there. And as I said at the start, you know, we don't really have to go looking for the private capital uh, guys. They're, they're calling us. So still a lot of activity out there. I think, you know, you talk about a blue wave. Yeah, the market dislocation with higher taxes or, or a change in cap gains. That'll be, mo- uh, you know, momentary. It'll, it'll, it'll kind of wash out with valuations in the long run. There might be opportunities for small, medium-sized businesses to, to play more games if those regulations and changes come. I think the blue wave or where they're looking is the high net wealth, the public companies to bring some taxes in, but long-winded on, on what we're seeing in the market. But, but yes, planning is key and, and starting to piece together whether you want to do an external sale or you've got a second-tier management that's capable of carrying it on or kids or, or however, that scenario analysis is, is good to do. So when you're ready to execute, it, it just comes naturally. And, and so what are some kind of, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. So, but as a small business owner and with this huge demographic shift you're seeing with you know, the baby boomers aging out and everyone's talking about this massive transition of wealth and control, what are just some good practice advice that you can give to folks that are, you know, small business owners today in the context of the election, but also just, you know, taking the election off the table and just saying in the next five years, what are some front end things that you can be doing to, to make your options better in the next few years? Sure. The illiquid assets, the operating companies is, is what we deal with, but that's a, for most families, that's a huge piece of the, the game plan or the playbook that Chris helps them work on. So having, Relevant current information on that is key. So don't tell, don't take your valuation or your appraisal with your buy sell agreement from two years ago. That's not current. We need to get that stuff updated so that the plan uh, is actionable. You know the other piece. What are the you know kind of key inputs to valuation? 
you know, there's the, the cash flow management is, is big right now. And, and having a, a short term or 13 week model, and as well as a long range model for how you rebound or rebuild out of COVID, or you may be booming in COVID, that's key. And so, and other pieces are management team, your assets, you know, as far as what kind of, what is the business model? Is it defensible, recurring sticky revenue? Those are things that, you know, understanding that, quantifying that and having that information available so that you do have an accurate market value of your business to help long range estate or family plan. Yeah, that's super helpful. And, and a conversation we're having with a lot of our LPs as well. Aaron, what are some talking points that you can use for or techniques that you can leverage for multi-generational wealth transfers right now? And without kind of giving free legal advice, what are some questions that people need to be asking their trust and estates attorneys as well as their wealth management folks? Yeah, well, I mean, first, you know, you need the fundamentals. You need your wills, your your incapacity documents. I think those have become very important in light of COVID. People realize, other than your father-in-law, they're not going to live forever, and that they need to have this in place. It's funny we benefit when the you know in March and April we had a lot of clients and a lot of planning because the economy, you know, the the business valuation was low, which from a state planner is great. I get to move it as long as the fundamentals of the business are great all that post-appreciation is out. So those are kind of things we're talking about with clients and say, look, draw a box. What is it you need? Work with your financial advisor. What is it? 10 million, 15 million, draw a box around it. And then let's look at what's outside of it. And, you know, some of the ones we're doing are, you'll hear it a lot, the, the SLAT, the Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. That's a great one because it allows you to leverage your GST, leverage your exemption, have your spouse as a beneficiary. So, so they're there. And then, you know, it continues on for, for in Tennessee up to 360 years if you want. But I think the, the conversations we're having is really lifestyle choices. What is, you know, what is it you need? What is it you feel comfortable with? And then let's look at that. And, you know, don't let the tax sale wag the dog. If, if you're saying, look, I need this, then let's not give it away. Or let's use a slat or some other, you know, a grat where you can retain that annuity right. But a lot of what we're doing is kind of twofold. It's one, taking advantage of low interest rates and valuation. I mean, just a pure get, uh, a pure loan, a $10 million loan is under 1% on your interest rate. So just, I mean, just loans are great because you freeze your estate, all that post appreciation's out, you know, grants and, and sales to get to kind of, to, to William's point, if you are thinking of an exit or a transition to the next generation and you want to make a sale, now's a great time. Likewise, we've been talking to business owners who are thinking about pulling the trigger on a buy. You know, the, the buy sales, fair market value. Fair market value is not what it was last year at this time. So there's an opportunity there to be a, a, a little bit of a predatory buyer. But then on the personal side, it's just, it's looking at old trust. You know, are the trusts fine? Is there a way to kind of to intentionally violate some things to cause inclusion so we can get to get, you know, reallocate our GSD or, a lot of that, but it's really just looking at what is it you want, where's our, what I refer to as our play money, and then how can we use that to benefit people? Because as your point, I'd rather I'd rather pay a little bit tax now, get all the appreciation out, than wait 10 years when you die, and then I'm paying tax on appreciation that could have escaped. Um, so it's really just working with them, figuring out what their comfort level is, and then going from there. And again, like I said, we're also reviewing a lot of old trusts, a lot of your old Tennessee Q-tips if people had them, or your, a lot of your old marital trusts. 
that we just might not need, or it could be more beneficial to to get a step up in basis and pay the estate or gift tax. So that's some of the stuff we've been dealing with people. And, and Chris, same question to you. I think giving you know specific advice is very difficult because everyone's in a different situation, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the blessing and the curse of your business. But mm-hmm. for folks on the call or who are listening to this afterwards, what are the right questions to be asking their financial advisor right now? It's a great question. I can tell you the questions that we're walking through with clients right now, and that, and that might be an appropriate way to answer that. Going back to what to what Aaron said, at the end of the day, what, what I think we're all trying to help people here do is reach their goals and their desires. In doing that, probably as safely and, and as effectively and efficiently as possible. So the questions that, that we always go back to, and again, this is going to be a broken record for exactly what Aaron just said, is where do you want to be? What do you want? What desire do you have that, that you would like to accomplish? And I think some of the questions that the clients can, can be asking their advisors could be around, you know, we're, we're talking about some of this tax, some of this tax stuff that could, that, that could take place here moving forward. If we're talking about estate and gift tax, exemption levels changing, capital gains rates are changing potentially, you know, step up in basis could potentially be eliminated. It's these questions that, that people, they want answers to if, if those changes take place, what does that mean for me? And so I think those are good questions for folks to really start evaluating because that's going to lead to the planning opportunities that the advisors around them can really help out with. And so, and really start developing uh, planning opportunities to put them in the right position so that if the step up in basis was eliminated or if there was a deemed at sale, a deemed sale at death rule that, that came into play, these, these different pieces, what does that mean for the next generation? And people asking specific questions around that or, hey, I've got a couple million bucks in my, in, in my IRA and what happens if, if my you know, next generation or subsequent generations inherit this? What does that mean for them from a tax standpoint? The SECURE Act changed what we can do with IRAs for non-spouse beneficiaries earlier this year. And so it's, it's just asking specific questions around the assets, but also around... What does that mean for their tax picture? What does that mean for their larger estate picture? And what kind of planning opportunities are there to help, again, reach those goals and and the desires that they have? And really sitting down and engaging in that conversation. I think far too often people don't take the time, advisors and clients both, don't take the time to sit down and engage in those conversations and opportunities to help them reach those goals more effectively and efficiently are not realized. And so take the time and and ask the questions that could be beneficial for your situation. And I'm hopeful that those that those help a little. Brian, let me let me jump in here. And that's I think Chris, something you said is important. Time, right? When Aaron's talking, okay, we had clients that started planning for this, for these changes a year ago, there's there's lots of time. I think what we're you're getting to the point in the year where there's there's not as much time for all of the all of the, these crucial discussions, right? Because if everyone's trying to do it, there's just not time. These aren't, a lot of decisions people are, are making, these are like decisions that are going to last a long time. So how can we do things in a way that like no regrets planning, I guess, if you will, how can we set things up that we can, we can get a- access to cash or assets back if we need it, but 
effectively something that we can that'll that'll make everyone's it'll meet everyone's desires um just personally like the intangible side do i want my kids to have access to the vote of the company whatever it is those sort of things but then also from a a cash flow and balance sheet perspective so we talked about like the family goals but then also the financial goals of running different scenarios models whatever it is whether it's the company it's your private equity investments your marketables what do those balance sheets look like over time, given different different assumptions, different different scenarios? You know, or I, I think the company is worth fifty million today. It's going to be worth one hundred fifty million next year. I sell it. What do I really want for myself at the end of the day? I think these are questions that it's not just like one conversation that you can have them, and and then there's all the financial implications of okay, I give this away. Am I am I doing something that I can I can be comfortable with? So I think it's things that time time is very helpful for. William, let's turn to you here now. What I hear um, oftentimes from the things that people don't want to say in public are sort of family perspective is typically, if I had known what my net of fees after tax number was going to be, and I realized that I had an exponentially growing family, and I had to maintain a certain quality of life over a period of time, I maybe would have thought twice about selling my operating company. So how do you guys work? Because I know you do a ton of pre-planning and you work with a lot of these other professionals on the front end. How do you work hand in glove to help avoid that situation down the road? Sure. The two key terms that both Josh and Chris were talking about is time and cash. Through you know, success stories and then regret with our clients. They come to us where, where a decision was made in, in the past and it didn't come to fruition like they thought it would. I look at it in two different ways, in two different veins. One is internally, if you're transferring the business to management or your kids, the key is, okay, how do we create cash? And so as Aaron alluded to, interest rates are low right now. We can, you know, we can go to the banks to fund it or we can do some sort of note on the business that the kids will pay back over time or some sort, of, some sort of earnout, but you have to remember that the buyer or the kids have to pay that somehow. And, and so the key there is that they're gonna be using a portion of those earnings that you've been taking and stashing away the whole time and then live off the, the rest, but the delta between the two. So that is uh, that creates, finding that perfect structure and that perfect number over the long range is key because you don't want to, you know, we've had several clients that they bought dad out at a valuation and they were strapped with the mes debt for three to five years that they couldn't service. And they've been living off a hundred thousand dollar salary or whatever it is when dad was living a, a million dollar life. So doing that calculus up front is key. The other side of it is, you know, selling externally, the timing and the cash piece is key there too. So with the, you know, when you're looking at, uh, the, the private capital markets, it's not just black and white. It's not just an all cash deal or 50-50 cash debt. We can get really creative. And we've done that a lot with clients where if someone's still got some runway, five years left on it, and they, they've got all of the ideas and the future growth initiatives out there, they just need somebody young and hungry to deal with the, the personnel admin side of it. We'll take some chips off the table get someone to buy in and bring in that, that management, that leadership role that'll help takes, you know, take some of the burden off your plate and then get a second bite of the apple. So it, you know, to, to Josh's point, if there's a, a $10 million company, but they know it's got potential to get to 50, but you don't have the energy, let's create a structure, a transaction structure where 
you take 60% or control off the table, help that, that group come in and, and take it to the $50 million business and you sell it to that next tranche of private equity out there for a higher valuation, you know, higher cash to pocket. Well, one thing I'd like to hit on real quick, not to drill down on the business succession, but I think William and Josh, you both hit on it. And that is the education of the client. And hey, post-sale, you're not an officer. You're not maybe an employee. So, you know, you can't have the company card. You can't have the company credit card. You know, these things that they're used to that, yeah, when you sell the business, you're out. I mean, that's kind of what that means. And it's funny because some clients, they're done. I'm not going to show up. Here's my my you know key to the building. I'm out, and then others sell it, but still want to stay involved. And and how does that look? And and what you know, William, to your point, does that burden the company going forward because you've got the impending shadow? And it's hard for clients. They put the sweat and equity to build it. It's their baby, and it's really hard for them to let go. And I think educating them on on what it looks like. And because maybe they say, well, no, I still want this. Okay, well, then maybe you're going to stay president. You know, maybe you're not going to be the, the you know CEO, but you'll stay on the employee role. So that's one thing that, that I think when you hit on Gray is really looking at post-exit, post-transaction, what does it look like? And is that what you're ready to deal with going right. forward? Yeah. Those EBITDA advacs or adjustments are an exercise we do with a lot of the closely held, privately owned businesses. And the other piece, to your point, when you transfer it to your kids or transfer it to management and you say, I'm out, I'm selling, you know, in reality, you're probably going to become a coach or a boss or an advisor for your kids. And so they're not going to have free reigns to run the business. So that is, there's, there's a psychological side of that, uh, of a transaction too. And to, to add on to Aaron's point, I think there's the education going in. And then from all of our perspective as advisors, there's the monitoring post-transaction. You've implemented the structure, you've made these changes. Now, we're there every quarter, every month, whatever it is, paying attention, making sure things are still going to plan because you can you can put a lot of plans in place. But if you you have a you have a note that you stop, you stop paying, um, start taking distributions from the wrong trust, you can blow up a lot of good planning that you did pretty, pretty quickly. So I think that's where all of us as advisors can come together and make sure things are staying on plan. Mm-hmm. Chris, I know you do a lot around kind of the communication component of it, trying to instill transparency amongst family members. I would love to hear your thoughts. I I know one of the challenges that I see across a lot of families is the first generation wealth creator, typically an alpha male, has built this big, beautiful thing, either his private business or a family office. And he never actually took the time to hear from the other family members if that's what they wanted to take over. And so there's this real disconnect, I think, between moving forward. What is the plan? Who's going to run this? I mean, how do you have those difficult conversations? Well, the the first thing that comes to my mind is you just have to have them, period. I think so many folks want to skirt around that because they are hard conversations. They're very hard conversations. And to peel back some of those pieces of the onion can certainly be challenging because you see warts and all when you do that. And so the thing that I would generally recommend is have those conversations earlier rather than later. Bring the family members in, bring the the people that need to be around the table. And that could include these other advisors too and probably should include those advisors. But the conversations need need to be from my from my vantage point open, candid, 
And depending on the context of the family and in the context of the business would dictate who needs to be around that table. And it takes time. Again, going back to time, it takes time and planning. Proper planning prevents poor performance. It's something that I, that I would um, certainly encourage people to think through because you've got to spend that time, take it seriously. We've been entrusted with much. And so to steward what we've been entrusted takes time and planning. And you have to have those conversations, the hard conversations. And I think earlier is better and make sure you got the right people on the table. All right. We've got some nitty gritty questions coming in here. What are some of the planning opportunities when it comes to gifting both charitably and intergenerationally as we look forward into 2021? Josh, Aaron, one of you want to take that one first? I guess intergenerationally, something I've been I've been thinking about is you have plenty of pl- families who have done they've done some planning, right? Or they've done grants or something like that, and they've got these trusts set up that unless they've done some sort of I'll just call it esoteric grant planning, they've got a trust that really is going to get taxed to the next generation. So if we have some exemption left that we can use, some GST exemption, we've got inefficient like grant remainder trust. Can we be selling assets between trusts to try to try to get get assets into GST into GST exempt structure, or do we have some trusts that that are in that form, but maybe we can make a late GST allocation to them, something something like that, just from a, a GST generational standpoint, from my perspective. I mean, I'll kick it over to Aaron. Anything else generationally? No, it's the same. You know, a lot of people they're taking advantage of the GST exempt. There's a certain type of trust that will qualify for the annual exclusion for the very limited annual exclusion for GST. So that'd be one you could take advantage of. But a lot of it's, yeah, to Josh's point, either pure gifting to a grandchild or dynasty trust. But a lot of where we're at is more looking at some trusts that are already there where, you know, they might have more, you know, might have been some grandfather, father or mother created that's not exempt. And is there a way to allow us to use our 12 point whatever, 11 point whatever million of exemption now, say, look, I'm never going to get there. So let's just go ahead and allocate to that GST trust late and then kind of cover it going forward. But, you know, loans are a great one. Like I said, it's not a gift, but it's a way to shift money because the rates are so low. And depending on where you, depending on where it is, you know, you can, can't have a prearranged plan, but if a year or two comes around where the interest is too high, You've got an annual exclusion. You can forgive it or you could give them the money and they can give it back to you. So, you know, a pure loan is, is really a good opportunity. Grats, to, to your point, Josh, are not the most efficient. Life insurance trusts. If you're saying, look, I, you know, I always, I always like life insurance as long as you're buying it for a reason. Not to just buy it, but if there's a reason. And some people say, look, I want to leverage it. I want to leverage my premium because there's going to be a big payout and I can shield it all from GST tax. It's a great reason for it. On the charitable side, um, you know, some of the things we're seeing are kind of your more common, you know, the remainder trusts aren't great right now because the rates are so low, but, you know, giving low basis assets, avoid that tax gain on when the, when the charity sells it. There's a recent case that came out on donor advised funds that basically said, as long as there was not a binding commitment to sell the asset, you can give it to the donor advised fund, get your deduction. And then all that gain when the donor advice fund sells it, it it's not taxable because they're a tax-exempt entity. But then the, the last one we're doing is, is what we've been doing for a while now, and that's just the bunching concept that, hey, look, you're going to be 
your charitable deduction is going to be limited. So let's make a large, you know, if you give to your university 50,000 every year, great. Put 500,000 in a DAP this year and then dole out 50,000 going forward. You get your big deduct, you know, your large deduction now, but you can then spread that out over time. So a lot on the charitable side, like I said, rates are a little bit low to make some of the planning real beneficial, but it's really just, it's cherry picking assets, trying to get rid of built-in appreciation and donor advice funds are a great way to do it right now. We're seeing a lot of people talk about private foundations and those almost 90% of the time end up in a donor advice fund. Foundations are great, but they're a lot more work than people I think anticipate on the front end. I think, I think one of the other things to think about from a charitable perspective is CARES Act brought about this kind of one-time opportunity for 100% of AGI to be able to be contributed to charity this year. I've seen that being done in limited cases. If you're doing that, you're probably very, very charitable in the first place. But seeing, seeing some people do that, that's something to consider. I guess the other thing you'd say is, okay, well, if I, maybe rates are going up, right? So do I make a kind do I make, do my, do I do my charitable next year? And it's against higher rates. One of the proposals out there, though, one of the buying proposals is that you will only benefit from your itemized deductions up to a 20, 28% rate benefit. So you can lose on that. So I have a family that I work with that is exceptionally charitable. They give, I would say, 30 or $40 million a year to charity. And their tax bill next year, nothing changes, despite being that charitable, will go up like $5 million, something like that. So you can be incredibly benevolent and charitable to the, to the world, but it's not going not to help you uh, next year. So I think timing is something to consider as well. Mm-hmm. There's another question here from Dean. And bear with me, I got a C in federal income tax when I was in law school. But I believe this is a, a CRT is a charitable remainder trust. What are the best assets to include in those typically? And maybe more importantly, what are things to avoid to put in those type of vehicles? This is probably best for Aaron and Josh, but I do want to also hear from William about how he interacts with these decision-making processes on the front end as well. I mean, I, th- I think from my perspective, what I am more, what I feel like we more commonly see is that someone's going to sell a business. If they want to sell a business, defer that capital gain over a, over a period of years, that may be something that it's something someone is doing. So let's say we think capital gains rates. I mean, again, I think a lot of things are coming down to timing right now is kind of my concern on things. The way a CRT works, if I put the assets in, I sell them, I will get a cash annuity out over time and pay tax on that over time based off the prevailing tax rates. Well, what do tax rates look next year, the next couple of years? If I have a 20-year CRT, I mean, maybe maybe I'm more okay with that, but I think it's just it's hard to know what the tax rates are going to be. I think, I mean, another thing I think people may be thinking about from a timing perspective is, am I selling my business? Am I getting cash payments over time? Am I electing out of installment sale treatment and trying to pull my gain into a, to an earlier year when I have a, have lower capital gains rates? But Aaron, interested in your perspective also on the, on the CRT. No, it's the same. I think to your point on the clients, it's very charitable. I mean, that's the first thing with charity. You know, why are you giving it? Because if you're giving it for the tax benefit, we're not we're not seeing eye to eye now because it's never going to be as rosy of a picture as you're expecting. So there needs to be a, a, a significant and, and true charitable intent in whatever you do. But yeah, to your point, you know, your CRTs are, are electing out installment. I haven't seen a lot of CRTs. I think that's just because the rates are so low and, and, you know, they're hard to make work 
the way they were, say, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, where the, the interest rate was a lot higher. So just the way you calculate your, your deduction was a little bit easier. But that's it. I mean, I think I just I don't see a lot of I just don't see a lot of CRTs coming in. If anything, I've seen more charitable lead trusts the past couple months, at least talked about. So I think you're going more there where you, you, to your point, hey, look, my kids have the insurance trust. They don't need the money coming from my estate. Let's leave it to charity for 15, 20 years, get rid of my tax bill, and then it flows out at the end. So those are a lot. And then on CRTs, you don't get the chair, the uh, GSD leveraging. So that's the other issue for large gifts that just don't make sense. Yeah, on the the planning on the front side is is really a math equation, right? So we we work with Chris to say how much do they need to live, how much do they want to save, and then how much do they want to put in this vehicle for charitable good. So you know, then the backwards math there, which I I know enough to be dangerous to do that math, but I let the experts do that. But you know, do the match the backwards math to that gross number, and then we go and look uh, at the market and see what value is dictated, and from there we can help. You know, if, if they need if they need to sell the business for 10 million to hit those metrics on the bottom line or to meet those desires, what are the value levers enhancers in the business that that we can control and change and help with a, a given short term to long term horizon, help to adjust to ensure that that value is maximized, that value is is received, and then it all flow, you know. So again, back to the planning so that we can execute when the time is right is how we look at it. If I could add uh, just one one quick thing onto that too, the you know there's also a timing issue when you when you're looking at gifting from from the business uh, or, or gifting a portion of the business. Aaron, I love that we came to donor advised funds. We're such big proponents of donor advised funds. And similar situation, we have conversations about private foundations, and almost always it ends up in donor advised funds for the reasons that you explain and, and more. But there has to be uh, careful consideration of going back to exactly what William just said, the planning on the front end to make sure that you are, are, are ready to give that gift into, again, let's say a donor advised fund before an, an LOI, for instance. And so you just got to, you have to be prepared for the nuances of gifting business interest because it can make a, it can make a significant difference. We had somebody last year that had sold a business and we got connected with them about three weeks after and uh, when we told them that they could have gifted a portion of that business to a donor advised fund and saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes, that was a, that was a pretty big bummer. And so uh, it, it's some, the, the planning is crucial on the front end, specifically when we're talking about gifting business interest. So there's a follow-up question from Dean, but before I pass it off to Aaron, I will say that anyone who's interested in connecting with any of the panelists, if you want to shoot me a note, I'm happy to provide content information and make an introduction. And that's one of the reasons that we do these things is to help facilitate our network with with professionals that that we think do a great job in their respective businesses or industries. Aaron, Dean wants to have you dig in a little bit more on what a charitable leave trust is. Yeah. So uh, a charitable leave trust, there's a charitable lead annuity and a charitable lead unit trust. But the premise is the same. Basically, you contribute money and then the term interest for a term of years during that time, either annuity or a unit trust is paid to a charitable organization, 501c3s. And then at the end, after the expiration of that term, whatever's left then flows out to your remainder beneficiaries, outright and trust or however. But what you see a lot of people do with these, especially your, your, your high net worth, 
is they use it as a soak up. Basically, you get a charitable deduction on your state tax return. And what they try to do is put enough in there to where it soaks up and they don't have to pay any estate tax. So basically what the, what, what, what the transaction is, is I'm going to give mine to charity so that I don't have to pay tax. But the trade-off is my beneficiaries aren't going to get it for 20 years and they're only going to get what's left. So, you know, you're going to have to have some appreciation in it. So it's, it's somewhat of a gamble in that those assets are going to appreciate and you're going to have some remainder. But again, the theory is I've got other ways. You know, my, my, my descendants have an insurance trust or I've already got the grantor trust or something else that's going to really get them through that term period. But it's all, it's usually they're about 15 to 20 years is kind of what I've seen. And it's just a way to get a charitable deduction and then it's that remainder that flows out to the beneficiaries. And then just to just oppose the, the charitable remainder trust, as it sounds, the period 15 to 20 or whatever, however long it is, that payment's going to the individual and then whatever's left at the end goes to the charity. So it's just the exact opposite of a, of a charitable remainder trust. I'm glad that you do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's very complicated. So yeah, Dean, happy to introduce you to Aaron if you want to um, chat offline. We've got about five minutes here. I want to be mindful of everyone's time. One question I kind of want to bring to the panel and, and people can respond as they wish, but I think all of us are in the you know professional service business. How have you seen your communication techniques change given COVID? And especially this whole year seems like it's one kind of disaster after the other. Where have you seen things been be effective and ineffective as we try to transition into this, I hate this term, it's hackneyed, but new normal. Do you have anything that you've taken away from that experience? I can I can add my two cents here quick. One of the things, probably probably two things specifically, and Brian, you're doing a masterful job at this, but but communicating to folks in um, doing webinars. People are hungry for information right now. People are hungry for education and they will pause in their day like we're doing right now. If they, if there's information that they want, they will pause uh, and, and, and watch. And so um, communicating with people through whether it's video or maybe doing white papers or whatever the case, but, but communicating uh, effectively with folks and providing great content to, to me has been a, has been something I've, I, I've really, I'm highly convicted of here moving forward. And the second thing, and this is just kind of old school, but picking up the phone and calling people. It is very easy for me to type a really quick email and pop it off, but simply picking up the phone and calling people, it makes a big difference. So those are, it's, it's kind of getting back to some of the old ways of doing things and not, you know, leveraging technology is a wonderful thing, but sometimes the old school way of doing it's a little bit better. So. Yeah. I mean, from, this is going to only probably interest people that, that are in the, the legal profession, but you know, the executive orders on, on remote notaries, remote notarization and witnessing that gun relief put out, those were kind of fun at the beginning. Cause right when COVID hit kind of pre that we were doing a lot of uh, on Tennessee, you don't have to have a, a trust doesn't have to be notarized. So I can send that to you. And we were doing holographic wills that poured over to the trust so that we didn't need a witness. We didn't need a notary. So some of it was fun to just try to figure out a way to get through it and get documents executed without having to be in a room. But yeah, you know, the, the, the way that people have adopted the video conferencing, I think has been amazing, especially, you know, obviously a lot of my clientele are in the older generations. 
and their adoption of technology has been great. They can do things much faster and easier than I can. But I, I think a lot of it's actually been beneficial because what, to, to Chris's point, what might have been a phone call to a, a new client or somebody that we're talking about is now a, a video chat. So the, it's a little bit more personal in that introduction than it would have been on a phone call. So I think there are some positives that are going to come out. I think some of the communications actually better now than it was pre-COVID, you know, and I do think people are a little bit more responsive. I, I will say, especially on the powers of attorney and the wills, you know, a lot more people are turning those around a lot faster. You, you know, they're just, they're more front of mind. Maybe someone they know is, has gotten sick, but that seems to be a lot more responsive on just getting back with documents. Yeah, Brian, I'll, I tip my cap to you for, for these webinars. I've learned a lot and I'm, I'm grateful to join one. And I'll echo what, what you two just said is, I think a lot of people's calendars have opened up. So, you know, a lot of, a lot more people are open to a call or a Zoom or Teams meeting and having, letting people know what you do and, and being willing to listen and take one, two, three, four phone calls to kind of talk about, you know, what's going on, ask questions has produced fruit for us. Being open to communicate is key. I agree, Chris. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just cap it off. I would say access to people has gotten much easier now. And I think that just using different te- technology in different ways, the ability to, to share my screen and walk somebody through a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint mm-hmm. and just be able to directly point at things has been just things that we, we weren't doing before. We're all printing out copies of everything, putting around the table, saying, are you on this page? Are you on this page? I just think there's, we, if we use, we use the technology, I think we'll continue using it even when things go back to some semblance of normal. Well, we're out of time. This is exactly the hour. Again, anyone who is watching this real time or on a recorded basis, feel free to reach out to me and I'll help facilitate introductions to these folks. And I want to thank all the panelists. There's a lot going on. It's tax day. Election is three weeks out. The Titans are 4-0. So anything is possible in this world. And uh, thank you all for your time. I know you're busy and uh, we'll all be in touch soon. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.